667. Happy to mark that and certainly use that later in our service times this morning. As I look over the audience, so thankful indeed can each of us be that we can assemble and gather today, that things are as well with you and I as they are to permit that in such a peaceful and tranquil way. I appreciate very much the announcement, the reminder about our gospel meeting. Isn't it a, an amazing thing to consider? We began announcing this a number of weeks ago, and it is now seven days away. Next Sunday, one week from today. I would also remind us, uh, don't forget a little bit about the, the unusual service times, our normal times at 9.30 and 10.30. But again, next Sunday, the afternoon service is at 2 o'clock. So, so not 5.30, but 2 o'clock. And also, don't forget our, our dinner on the ground that will take place right after the morning services, uh, taking care of all the, the delicious uh, fellowship opportunities in that way as well. Perhaps it would be a good idea, though, for each of us to take to heart the seriousness and at least the blessing that this gospel meeting affords us. So if I could invite each of us to, to at least reflect on it this way. Invite somebody to be with us. In other words, take it as a personal challenge. Take it as a, a personal, in fact, commitment. Invite somebody to come and be with you as a part of this gospel meeting. In fact, one per service would be wonderful. But let's make sure that we have those here who need these gospel messages. It's not to say we don't, but we do have a keen interest in the fact there's so many who are lost, and they need to hear what, what Brother Higginbotham's going to preach. So let's take each of us individually as a commitment. Bring somebody with you. Pass out those flyers and invite them to come. Now, that being said, the lesson today will, in fact, touch upon the, the ladies' Bible class, or at least the idea, and I know a moment ago it was just announced that they'll not meet this coming Tuesday. But that lesson, I would encourage you to think about it. It, it is fundamentally important. You and I must have an understanding of that if we're going to properly interpret the Bible. That's just the way it is. Let's develop that in, in the following somewhat brief way this morning. This next slide, this first slide of the lesson, will be one that sets before us the two main ideas. That is to say, the principal constructs around which this is going to be built. Wouldn't every one of us agree that there are scattered through the Word of God many occasions in which there are commandments that are clearly and positively stated. Now that was true in the Old Testament. It's also true in the New. I selected one as an example, Matthew 4 verse 10. Listen to the thoroughness and the directness of it. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. What a direct commandment. It's not possible to misunderstand that, it seems to me. And that means any time you and I fail to worship Him as we ought to, we're guilty of an error in the sight of God. Thou shalt do this, Jesus said. But now taking that to the next point, may I suggest it seems with regard to every commandment in the, in the Word of God, there are two things that could be noted. One are incidental matters. The other, things God did not expressly include as a part of His statement. Both of them are vital. Let's study about each one of them in turn for the next few moments this morning. And remember, the title of the lesson is, God did not say not to. You could probably already begin to complete sentences that make use of the conclusion of it. But the first slide, and the one that develops the first point. 
what are meant by incidental matters? That is to say, what are meant about things that might be termed incidental? I thought I'd start with an example, first of all, that's not a Bible one, so that we can see the point. I have at least briefly described it on the slide. Suppose a teacher to a group of students says, you read this questionnaire, this, this listing of questions, and you answer them. Would we all agree there are some incidental matters included in that? Things such as these. Am I supposed to answer in cursive or in block letters? Am I supposed to use pencil or ink? If ink, what color? Black, blue, red, green? The teacher didn't say. Well, may I say that's the point. There are some things that are incidental in regard to the obedience to a commandment. The teacher said, read the questionnaire and answer the questions. Those other incidental matters were not a part of her immediate response. In fact, in light of that, some of these things are going to readily follow. I'd like you to consider that that same appreciation must be true of us as we give thought to the commandments found in the Word of God. In Genesis chapter 6, let's consider an Old Testament example. God told Noah to build an ark. That seems pretty specific. He told him the dimensions of it. 300 cubits in length, 50 cubits in width, 30 cubits in height. That's pretty specific. He told him how many stories to put in it, namely three. He told him how many doors to put in it, namely one. Now, all of that seems perfectly understandable, but might we invite this? Is it not true that there were some incidental matters to be included in this? Things such as this. Remember, God said, pitch it within and without was pitch. So, Noah, am I supposed to put the pitch on with a brush or a rag? God didn't say. Interesting, God didn't say. Furthermore, you might in fact imagine a whole host of other kinds of questions. Am I to cut down the logs with an axe or a saw? God didn't say. Point is, you'll notice God did give these commandments, but there were some incidental matters that were necessarily to be considered in light of the fulfillment of the commandment. At this point, notice yet another example. In Exodus 20 verse 12, in the Ten Commandments, God specifically said, Honor your father and your mother. That seems like a very direct command. May I ask about the specifics of this? What does that mean about my father and my mother? How do I go about honoring them? What sorts of things do I do and what sorts of things do I not do? All the verse said was, Honor your father and your mother. Now, you and I can study in some detail the meaning of the word honor, and it means to respect, it means to consider as weighty that individual. We understand that. But may I again say, when it comes to the day-to-day -day appreciation, what does it mean? Could it not be that the third one's another example? 1 Peter 1.16, God says to every one of us, You be holy, for I'm holy. How do I do that? Well, of course, we can utilize many verses in the Word of God to help us appreciate things which that does mean and other things which it does not. I believe at this point, the point is already well appreciated. 
and maybe the last one will kind of draw that matter to at least a first conclusion. Every one of us knows there's going to come a time later in the service today when as a part of the worship, we're going to give as we've been prospered. And so we do that because the New Testament commands it. In fact, we take it very seriously. But God says, take up the collection. He didn't say what to take it in. We could pass a shoebox. We could pass a bucket, a pail. None of that would make any difference. That's an incidental matter. The point is, the collection must be taken. In fact, you can imagine any number of particular vessels. And furthermore, you could supply cash, you can supply a check. Either would satisfy the command God has given. All of those are merely incidental considerations. It's at this point, though, that that slide's going to continue to develop it like this. We must be very sure, and we must, of course, interpret the Word of God in light of the commandments He's given. If God has not stated matters concerning incidentals, then you and I must never elevate them to a law of God. Because if so, we are making God laws where God didn't make one. And at the bottom of that slide, as you and I think about Noah, I listed a few things a moment ago, but isn't it true? I've now tried to even be more clear. We know that God said what wood was to be used. Noah, gopher wood is what you must utilize in order to, in fact, build this ark. Well, that's fine. And again, the length and the various dimensions were given. Have you ever noticed? God did not give the thickness of the wood. How thick were the wood planks to be? God didn't say. Apparently, that was left to Noah's discretion. It was left for him to ascertain what would be the proper thickness in order to yield the length of that ark as God has specified it. By that same token, notice one more time. I mentioned earlier the application of the pitch. I'd suggest that, of course, assisted in making it watertight. Was Noah to put the pitch on, again, with a brush, or at least some kind of brush-like object, or was it perhaps with a cloth of some form? We do not know. And it'd be wrong on our part to dogmatically assert one or the other. All of that begs a number of questions. It's one thing to talk about all of this in light of Noah's day. It's certainly another to bring that consideration to your life and mine in Jesus Christ today. Incidentals. That is to say, things which are necessary in order to complete a command God has given. There's no question about the command. But sometimes you and I are left to our discretion, our judgment, as we in fact seek to fill out or at least to obey that commandment. This next slide will be our attempt to give some thought to this. I've asked you to consider at the top of that slide again the matters of the contribution. Isn't it true there are certain things about that that we know without question? We know what day of the week. It's got to be the first day of the week. And we know it's to be, again, never grudgingly and not of necessity. We understand that it's to be as we've been prospered. That, that's easy to understand. But as I mentioned, the particulars of the way in which it is collected, God has not specified that one. He's left that to our judgment. And our elders have seen fit to pass these silver-looking plates. 
that's fine. But again, it could be any number of other particulars, and it would still satisfy that commandment. To carry that thought, however, just one step further, may I say this, what about our singing? Wouldn't it be fair to say that it would seem every element of our worship is something that at least could be described in the same way? We know we are commanded to sing, no question about that one. We are specifically taught in Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, among others, we must sing if we're to please God. Does that mean four-part harmony or not? God doesn't say. If we chose here to not sing four-part harmony, we could still please God. But we choose to follow those parts in the book. There's soprano, there's alto, there's tenor and bass. And individuals can sing all of them, and it's still doing that which God has commanded. May I also invite us, though, to apply it to another one. Romans 14, beginning in verse number 1. It seems as Paul addressed the generality of this principle, there's a rather important principle in it that's very needful for us. All we'll need to do is note basically the opening verse of that chapter. Him that is weak in the faith... Receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. In other words, Paul made recognition on that occasion that there were some individuals who, in fact, were somewhat weaker in faith than others. And he said to those that are strong, you must not conduct yourself in a way particularly with regard to that over which they're weak to cause them to stumble and their faith, in fact, to drop away. Now, as you and I come give thought to that today, there are incidental matters in the Word of God. It would be wrong for you and me. It'd be wrong for our elders to take something that is in the realm of incidental matter in the Bible and yet lift that to an, a law of God. If our elders commanded with regard to, let's say, singing, it'd be wrong, for instance, someone might say, not to sing in four-part harmony. That'd be going too far. God has not made that dictate in the Word of God. And therefore, you and I would be in error to reach any such verdict as that. Perhaps one more thing. Isn't it true that these incidentals that are mentioned in the Bible, or at least that come to our mind, their purpose is and their role is to aid one in the obedience of a command God has given. So earlier, as we mentioned, brush or cloth for putting on the pitch. Again, in the days of Noah, the point was God said to pitch the ark within and without, and the matter is to get that completed in a satisfactory way. Well, so it remains today. An incidental is merely an aid to the obedience of a command God has given, and that's the way we look at it. No wonder as we close that slide. Isn't it true that even evangelism falls into this consideration? Consider this example. In Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Lord, I have a few questions. How am I supposed to go? Is it okay if I walk? Can I take a car, a boat, a train, an airplane? Can I use radio? May I use television? 
And the Lord would overwhelmingly say, yes, you may use any of them. My point is for you to go. The mechanisms that you may have access to that permit that are all perfectly acceptable. And so here, of course, at the Pippin Church, we gladly use a number of them. We go, but it's not that you and I perhaps individually and personally do. We have radio programs, and we're about to have a gospel meeting. And as we do all of that, our goal is to go. Did you notice, though, that we're then making use of the power of the incidentals, aren't we? Perhaps it's fair to say, as far as we going, we are in fact utilizing the means, the agencies God has given us to send that gospel message, the only message that can save. And so the matter of incidentals, might we take note, there have been occasions and times when the very matter of these has brought about great discord among brethren, where there have been some who would wish to elevate an incidental to a statement of command, and in so doing has caused great harm to the church. It's our goal to simply see those incidentals as aiding us, assisting us in obeying a command God has given. But I would state that there was another part of that lesson's title, or at least another part of its opening statement. What about the things that God has not expressly mentioned? That is to say, things that in fact He has not expressly forbidden. This one has even been more problematic. Oh, how many things it has been a source of controversy and discussion. Let me begin it like this. There are many things in terms of the commands of God that are directly presented with regard to some things and nothing of some other things is mentioned at all. Absolutely nothing. I'd like you to think pretty carefully with me about some of these examples and the implication of the Word of God to them. Perhaps we might begin like this. I want to invite your attention to the Ark of the Covenant for the next few moments. Now, you and I know much about that Ark of the Covenant. It was a small chest, at least on the whole, only you know, a couple of feet long and less than that in width and less than that in height. It simply wasn't that large a piece of furniture. And yet it occupied a central position and a central role in the, in, the, uh, in the ancient tabernacle. But I have a few questions about that. May I ask, who had the right to carry it? Or to say that differently, how was it to be transported? You and I know the tabernacle was a movable place of worship. The ark had to be moved sometime. Who was to move it? And how was it to be moved? I would ask your consideration to Numbers chapter 4. We're going to read a couple of verses out of that chapter. So Numbers chapter 4, verse number, four, uh, verse number 16. And to the office of Eleazar the son of Aaron, the priest pertaineth the oil for the light, and the sweet incense, and the daily meat offering, and the anointing oil, and the oversight of all the tabernacle, and of all that therein is, in the sanctuary and in the vessels thereof. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Cut ye not off the tribe of the families of the Kohathites from among the Levites, but thus do unto them that they may live and not die when they approach unto the most holy things. Aaron and his son shall go in, 
and appoint them every one to his service, to his burden. Now that set of verses and those that follow indicate this. You and I learn pretty clearly God instructed that the Levites were those that had the charge and responsibility of making sure the tabernacle and the things in it were properly conveyed and moved. But we could do better than that. Not only was it asserted in regard to the Levites, but notice, of the Levites, there was the family of Kohath. God specifically indicated to them that they were the ones, and only they were the ones, that were allowed to move the tabernacle. I'm sorry, that were, the, that were able to move the Ark of the Covenant. So please appreciate this. So there were Levites who were not of the tribe of Kohath. Though they were Levites, they did not have the luxury, the opportunity, the blessing of God, if you please, in the movement of the Ark of the Covenant. May I say, that's a strong statement. Of all the people who were the Levites, only the Kohathites. Let's read even further. Isn't this a principal idea then in helping you and I understand an event that happened later in the Old Testament? This has been a matter that has troubled quite a few individuals throughout the ages. Let's go ahead and turn to 1 Chronicles and not only see what the event was, but how our understanding of it hinges on what we're discussing today. In 1 Chronicles chapter 13, we have the following observation. I'll simply, without reading it, remind us of the story. The Ark of the Covenant at that point was in a rather distant place. It, in many years earlier, had been captured by the Philistines, but they had returned it to the children of Israel, and it had stayed in this city known as Abinadab, or related to it, for a long, long time. And finally, David had the idea to bring that Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And so they promptly proceeded to load it onto a cart. And as they did that, the oxen, as they were driving it along, they arrived at the threshing floor of Aruna, and the oxen stumbled. And one of the gentlemen named Uzzah, who was assisting in the conveyance of the ark, he reached out his hand to steady the ark, no doubt, supposing that he might assist it from not falling. But as he steadied it, God in judgment killed him, brought him to death, end of his life. And no doubt many might wonder, what was the error here? Isn't it true that he was only attempting to steady this precious piece of furniture? He was only trying to be of helpful that it might not be damaged and arrive at Jerusalem so that it could be used as a part there of ultimately the tabernacle and later the temple. The error? Wouldn't we like to know? And aren't we thankful the Bible tells us? What is it that Uzzah had done? What I have just at least, at least briefly surveyed is the detail of chapter 13. At this point, let's finish it up. After that event with Uzzah, David, who was the one whose idea it was to bring it, of course, to Jerusalem, he determined, let's leave it here. He chose at that point to make the decree, let's don't go ahead and bring it. Whatever it is we've done, apparently God's displeased with it. 
As we arrive at chapter 15, though, David learned what it was that had caused this. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1 of 1 Chronicles 15. It says, And David made him houses in the city of David, and prepared a place for the ark of God, and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, None ought to bear the ark of God but the Levites. For them hath the, God, hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto Him forever. May we make two observations. First of all, in light of what God had earlier decreed back in the book of Numbers, who was to touch the ark and who was to convey it? That obligation, that responsibility had been left not only with the Levites, but particularly with the family of Kohath. It was only the Kohathites. Might we now ask, this man named Uzzah, was he a Kohathite? Was Uzzah of the family of Kohath? And the answer is no. He had no right to touch it. He had no right to be a critical part of the conveyance of it. That was not what God commanded. But could we also make this statement? That wasn't the only error. That wasn't the only thing to be mentioned. Transition down to verse number 13 of the same chapter, 1 Chronicles 15. I'll begin reading in verse number 12. And said unto them, Ye are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both ye and your brethren, that ye may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it. For because ye did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought Him not after the due order. Two things of note, it seems, in that passage. One is, David immediately admitted, you Levites, you were not the ones that were involved in first moving it. So David now understood one of the errors. But notice how he closes that verse. Not after the due order. Isn't it also true that something else was asserted relative to the Ark of the Covenant? That was the way in which it was designed, and it was the way in which its description was given. If we transition back to Exodus 25, God gave them the dimensions of the Ark and overlaid with gold without and within. And on that Ark there were rings at the four corners and staves that were through those rings. And that was the mechanism that God had organized for its moving. May I ask, how did David and those in his day attempt to move it? They loaded it on a cart pulled by some kind of an animal. They were supposed to have used staves through those rings, those golden rings, and that's how it was to be moved and conveyed. There were two mistakes, two errors. And sadly, tragically, it cost us his life. And might we say, David recognized the judgment of God on this occasion. As we close that slide, may I say that, what about another Old Testament example? So far, haven't we learned then, where in the Old Testament did it ever say, Thou shalt not move the Ark of the Covenant on a cart? It had never said that. What it had said is you use the staves through the golden rings. That's what it said. But because that is what it did say, it eliminated the other possibilities. What about this one? It did say that the Kohathites were to be the ones to move it. It never said you're not to use people from the tribe of Dan or people from the tribe of Reuben. But it didn't have to because it did say those that were to do it. 
perhaps another example of that would be drawn from Leviticus 10. One that challenges us in regard to worship this time. Admittedly, it was the Old Testament worship of Nadab and Abihu. But how great will be the principles of it. All we'll need to do is read the first verse or two of that chapter and the point will be plain. Remember, we're asking about what about the things God did not say not to do. Leviticus 10 starts like this, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now there we have the inspired definition. What is this strange fire? Well, notice it's fire he had not commanded them. Isn't it true? God had given them the information about where and how was to be the origin and source of that fire to be utilized, and these two sons of Aaron chose a different source. We'll get the fire somewhere else. Isn't this fire as good as that one? Isn't this source as good as that one? Fire is fire, perhaps they would think. But not in the judgment of God it wasn't. When God had indicated where that fire was to be taken from, that eliminated all the other possibilities, and therefore this fire was strange. And they lost their life because of it. They appreciated very strongly and immediately the judgment of God. It seems that one of the clear things we can conclude so far already, when God has specified all the other particulars are eliminated, all other options are no longer options if one is to please God. That happened with regard to David and the ark. It happened in regard to Nadab and Abihu. May I say then that as we use this even further, the application to the New Testament is clear and is something that is certainly very important to you and to me. For example, look at this verse in 1 Corinthians 4, verse number 6. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, they were timelessly told and very clearly asserted in regard to this point. Notice, what about the things God hasn't mentioned? And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. And it's the latter part of that verse that captures our attention, at least for this discussion. Brethren, they must not go beyond what is written. That is to say, when God has specified, all the other particulars are eliminated. All of them are thus forbidden. Now notice, that's different than incidentals. When God has given a command, there may be incidental matters to the obedience to that command. But that's different than taking a matter which God has not expressly mentioned, but which does militate against a command He has given. Those are very different. So much so that notice here it would be wrong, just like it was for Nadab and Abihu. God said where the fire was to come from, and they chose something different. With regard to the ark, God said how it was to be moved, and they chose a different means. Perhaps in that application, we might come to here. 
I would suggest that one of the strongest New Testament passages that lifts high the principle of this point, it surrounds the priesthood of Jesus. Follow me as we at least think about the book of Hebrews for just a moment. Remember, we are thinking about those instances in which God didn't say not to. Well, doesn't that mean it's okay? By the way, there are many today who will use that idea relative to our worship. God never said not to play a guitar in worship. He never said not to play a piano. The word piano is not in the Bible anywhere. Neither is the word guitar. Well, if He hasn't said not to, doesn't that mean it's okay? Listen to me now. This principle is absolutely critical. And if we fail in it, just like David did, and just like Nadab and Abihu, we'll end up on the wrong side of eternity, at least in regard to that point. When God does not expressly approve it, that forbids it. That has always been true in the Bible. Think about Noah again. God did say, use gopher wood. What He didn't say not to use sycamore. He didn't say not to use oak or cherry. But you and I all know if Noah had used cherry or oak or sassafras or anything else, it would not have been what God said. God didn't have to say not to use any of them because He did say to use gopher wood. That's all He needed to say. Well, today He has said, you sing in worship. He doesn't have to say, don't use a harp, don't use a guitar, don't use a piano, a harpsichord, or anything else. He doesn't have to say it because He has said what He does want. And if we honor that, we know everything is well in our perspective before Him. As I mentioned, this example of the priesthood of Jesus is very strong. In Hebrews chapters 4 and following. Now this is developed in many of the things to be following. I would only ask you clearly, I notice I didn't even give you the verse there, but we'll notice it in chapter 7 and 8 in just a minute. May I ask you, so what tribe were the priests to come from in the Old Testament? We know that answer. It was the tribe of Levi. All the priests had to come out of Levi. Well, may I say this? You and I could answer that question easily. What about the tribe of Reuben? Dan, Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh, Zebulun, Naphtali, all the others. What about all of them? Nowhere in the Bible did it ever say that God addressed the tribe of Reuben and said, No priest come out of your tribe. Nowhere did God ever address the tribe of Benjamin and say, No priest come out of your tribe. Nowhere did God address Zebulun. Point is, did he have to do that? If he had already said that they were to come out of Levi, he never had to address the others and say, No priest out of your tribe. And may I suggest that kind of logic is used in regard to the priesthood of Jesus. Let's come near the close of our lesson and make mention of it this way. In Hebrews chapter 7, Beginning in verse number 10, it reads, For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical order, the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not to be called after the order of Aaron? 
So the Hebrew writer, by inspiration, directs our attention to the Levitical order, the priesthood. But he quickly makes note, there's a priest after the order of Melchizedek who's different than these. His point, chapter 8, verses 2 and following. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. What a profound argument. The Hebrew writer says, if Jesus were on earth, he could not be a priest after the Levitical order. Why? Because he was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. And again, the point is, God never said to the tribe of Judah, no priest out of your tribe. But yet, the Hebrew writer says, Jesus couldn't serve as a priest on earth because he's not of that tribe. In other words, the whole argument is based on the silence and what God does not expressly approve, He condemns. That's exactly what happened here. I hope as we come near the close of that, this particular lesson, we can finish it up with that one final statement. The silence of the Word of God is restrictive. It always has been. Noah understood it. So too, David, in the finer moments he did, he first made his mistake with regard to that ark, but later understood it. And you and I in wisdom must understand it today. When the Bible authorizes, it authorizes not by its silence. It authorizes by what it says. So just because the Bible doesn't say not to do something, that does not give us permission to do it. I hope we all appreciate that and very strongly apply that to life. In closing this lesson, then, may I suggest you think about Matthew 15, verses 7 to 9. Because Jesus there said it like this. He pronounced a condemnation, a great woe, if you please, on those who substitute for commands of God the commands of men. He said their worship is vain. He said, they worship me in vain, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Notice again, they have then taken that which God has asserted, slipped it out and put in something that's their idea. In so doing, they have tried to utilize maybe the silence of the Bible in the wrong way. The issue we've discussed today, God didn't say not to. I hope we can already learn, though, that when He has specified, that eliminates all the other possibilities. Today, may we say, He has specified the plan of salvation. And He specified the uniqueness of the church. And He specified faithfulness required until death. Does that characterize you and me? If you've never become a Christian, why not today? This 28th day of April, 2019, what better day could there be? You could be baptized into Christ today upon your belief in Jesus, the repentance of your sins, and the confession of the greatest of all names. If we might be of help in that way, well, what a delightful blessing it'd be for us, and but even greater for you to stand right before God. If you have become a Christian, maybe at one time you knew the connection you had to eternity in faithfulness to God. But since that time, things have happened. You're no longer faithful, and you know it. 
More than that, Jesus knows it. May I say that what a great time it would be. Why not come back to your first love the way it was when you were faithful? To be cleansed from sin, to know both inwardly and outwardly what purity is is in your life in regard to the things God has observed. But if we could be of help in that way today, notice again, it isn't merely our idea. The Lord wants you. He wants you faithful at His side. He has specified the way that must be done. You've got to repent of those sins. That means turn aside from them. No longer approve them or live in them. Turn aside from them. Make confession of them. And we'd be honored to pray to God on your behalf. If we could be of help in that way or the other today, it'd be our delight to do it. At once, while together we stand and sing.